Chapter 19 of The Window at the White Cat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Robert Kuyper. Chapter 19 Back to Bellwood. The inability of Marjorie Fleming to tell who had chloroformed her, and Mrs. Butler's white face and brooding eyes, made a very respectable mystery out of the affair. Only Fred, Edith, and I came down to breakfast that morning. Fred's expression was half amused, half puzzled. Edith fluttered uneasily over the coffee machine, her cheeks as red as the bow of ribbon at her throat. I was preoccupied, and like Fred, I propped the morning paper in front of me and proceeded to think in its shelter. "'Did you find anything, Fred?' Edith asked. Fred did not reply, so she repeated the question with some emphasis. Hm? "'What?' Fred inquired, peering around the corner of the paper. Did you find any clue? Yes, dear. That is, no, nothing to amount to anything. Upon my soul, Jack, if I wrote the editorials of this paper, I'd say something. He subsided into inarticulate growls behind the paper, and everything was quiet. Then I heard a sniffle distinctly. I looked up. Edith was crying, pouring cream into a coffee cup and feeling blindly for the sugar, with her pretty face twisted and her pretty eyes obscured. In a second I was up, had crumpled the newspapers, including Fred's, into a ball, and had lifted him bodily out of his chair. "'When I am married,' I said fiercely, jerking him around to Edith and pushing him into a chair beside her, "'if I ever read the paper at breakfast when my wife is bursting for conversation, may I have some good and faithful friend who will bring me back to a sense of my duty.' I drew a chair to Edith's other side. "'Now, let's talk,' I said." She wiped her eyes shamelessly with her table napkin. "'There isn't a soul in this house I can talk to,' she wailed. "'All kinds of awful things happening, and we had to send for coffee this morning, Jack. You must have used four pounds last night, and nobody will tell me a thing. There's no use asking Marjorie. She's sick at her stomach from the chloroform, and Ellen never talks except about herself, and she's horribly uninteresting.' And Fred and you make a barricade out of newspapers and fire yes at me when you mean no. I put the coffee back where I got it, Edith, I protested stoutly. I know we're barbarians, but I'll swear to that. And then I stopped, for I had a sudden recollection of going upstairs with something fat and tinny in my arms, and finding it in my way, and of hastily thrusting it into the boy's boot closet under the nursery stair. Fred had said nothing. He had taken her hand and was patting it gently, the while his eyes sought the headlines on the wad of morning paper. "'You burned that blue rug,' she said to me disconsolately, with a threat of fresh tears. "'It took me ages to find the right shade of blue.' "'I will buy you that Shervan you wanted,' I hastened to assure her. "'Yes, to take away when you get married.' There is a hint of the shrew in all good women. "'I will buy the Shervan and not get married.' Here, I regret to say, Edith suddenly laughed. She threw her head back and jeered at me. You! <laughs> she chorkled and pointed one slim finger at me mockingly. You who are so mad about one girl that you love all women for her sake. You who go white instead of red when she comes into the room. You who have let your practice go to the dogs to be near her and then never speak to her when she's around but sit with your mouth open like a puppy begging for candy, ready to snap up every word she throws at you and wiggle with joy. I was terrified. Honestly, Edith. 
"'Do I do that?' I gasped. But she did not answer. She only leaned over and kissed Fred. "'Women like men to be awful fools about them,' she said. "'That's why I'm so crazy about Freddy.' He writhed. "'If I tell you something nice, Jack, will you make it a room-size rug?' "'Room-size it is. Then Marjorie's engagement ring was stolen last night, and when I commiserated her, she said, oh, "'Dear me, the lamp's out and the coffee's cold.' "'Remarkable speech under the circumstances,' said Fred. Edith rang the bell and seemed to be thinking. "'Perhaps we'd better make it four small rugs instead of one large one,' she said. "'Not a rug until you have told me what Marjorie said,' firmly. "'Oh, that! Why, she said it didn't really matter about the ring. She had never cared much about it anyway.' "'But that's only a matter of taste,' I protested, somewhat disappointed. But Edith got up and patted me on the top of my head. "'Silly,' she said. "'If the right man came along and gave her a rubber teething ring, she'd be crazy about it for his sake.' "'Edith,' Fred said, shocked. But Edith was gone. She took me upstairs before I left for the office to measure for the Shervan. Edith being a person who believes in obtaining a thing while the desire for it is in its first bloom. Across the hall, Fred was talking to Marjorie through the transom. "'Mustard leaves are mighty helpful,' he was saying. "'I always take them on shipboard. "'And cheer up! Land's in sight!' I would have given much for Fred's ease of manner when, a few minutes later, Edith having decided on four sure vans and a hall runner, she took me to the door of Marjorie's room. She was lying very still and pale in the center of the white bed, and she tried bravely to smile at us. "'I hope you are better,' I said. "'Don't let Edith convince you that my coffee has poisoned you.' She said she was a little better, and that she didn't know she had had any coffee. That was the extent of the conversation. I, who have a local reputation of a sort before a jury, I could not think of another word to say. I stood there for a minute, uneasily, with Edith poking me with her finger to go inside the door and speak and act like an intelligent human being— but I only muttered something about a busy day before me and fled. It was a singular thing, but as I stood in the doorway, I had a vivid mental picture of Edith's description of me, sitting up puppy-like to beg for a kind word and wiggling with delight when I got it. If I slunk into my office that morning like a dog scoured to his kennel, Edith was responsible. At the office I found a note from Miss Letitia and after a glance at it I looked for the first train in my railroad schedule. The note was brief, unlike the similar epistle I had received from Miss Jane the day she disappeared. This one was very formal. Mr. John Knox. Dear Sir, Kindly oblige me by coming to see me as soon as you get this. Some things have happened, not that I think they are worth a row of pins, but Hepzibah is an old fool, and she says she did not put the note in the milk bottle. Yours very respectfully, Letitia Ann Maitland. I had an appointment with Burton for the afternoon to take Wardrop, if we could get him on some pretext, to Dr. Anderson. That day, also, I had two cases on the trial list. I got Humphreys across the hall to take them over, and evading Hawes' resentful blink, I went on my way to Bellwood. It was nine days since Miss Jane had disappeared. On my way out in the train, I jotted down the things that had happened in that time. Alan Fleming had died and been buried. The Borough Bank had failed. 
Some one had got into the Fleming house and gone through the papers there. Clarkson had killed himself. We had found that Wardrop had sold the pearls. The leather bag had been returned. Fleming's second wife had appeared, and some one had broken into my own house and, intentionally or not, had almost sent Marjorie Fleming over the borderland. It seemed to me that everything pointed in one direction, to a malignity against Fleming that extended itself to the daughter. I thought of what the woman who claimed to be the dead man's second wife had said the day before. If the staircase she had spoken of opened into the room where Fleming was shot, and if Schwartz was in town at the time, then in view of her story that he had already tried once to kill him, the likelihood was that Schwartz was at least implicated. If Wardrop knew that, why had he not denounced him? Was I to believe that after all the mystery the number 1122 was to resolve itself into the number of a house? Would it be typical of the Schwartz I knew to pin bits of paper to a man's pillow? On the other hand, if he had reason to think that Fleming had papers that would incriminate him, it would be like Schwartz to hire someone to search for them, and he would be equal to having Wardrop robbed of the money he was taking to Fleming. Granting that Schwartz had killed Fleming, then who was the woman with Wardrop the night he was robbed? Why did he take the pearls and sell them? How did the number 1122 come into Aunt Jane's possession? How did the leather bag get to Boston? Who had chloroformed Marjorie? Who had been using the Fleming house while it was closed? Most important of all, now, where was Aunt Jane? The house at Bellwood looked almost cheerful in the May sunshine as I went up the walk. Nothing ever changed the straight folds of the old-fashioned lace curtains. No dog ever tracked the porch or buried sacrilegious and odorous bones on the level lawn. The birds were nesting in the trees, well above the reach of Robert's ladder, but they were decorous, well-behaved birds, whose prim courting never partook of the exuberance of their neighbors, bursting their little throats in an elm above the baby perambulator in the next yard. When Bella had let me in, and I stood once more in the straight hall with the green rep chairs and the Japanese umbrella stand, involuntarily I listened for the tap of Miss Jane's small feet on the stairs. Instead came Bella's heavy tread, and a request from Miss Letitia that I go upstairs. The old lady was sitting by a window of her bedroom, in a chintz-upholstered chair. She did not appear to be feeble. The only change I noticed was a relaxation in the severe tidiness of her dress. I guessed that Miss Jane's exquisite neatness had been responsible for the white ruchings, the soft caps, and the spotless shoulder shawls which had made lovely their latter years. "'You've taken your own time about coming, haven't you?' Miss Letitia asked sourly. "'If it hadn't been for that cousin of yours you sent here, Burton, I'd have been driven to sending for Amelia Miles, and when I send for Amelia Miles for company, I'm in a bad way.' "'I've had a great deal to attend to,' I said as loud as I could. "'I came some days ago to tell you Mr. Fleming was dead. After that we had to bury him and close the house. It's been very sad. Did he leave anything?' she interrupted. "'It isn't sad at all unless he didn't leave anything.' He left very little, the house perhaps, and I regret to have to tell you that a woman came to me yesterday who claims to be a second wife. She took off her glasses, wiped them, and put them on again. Then, she said with a snap, there's one other woman in the world as big a fool as my sister Martha was. I didn't know there were two of them. What do you hear about Jane? The last time I was here, I shouted, you thought she was dead. Have you changed your mind? 
The last time you were here, she said with dignity, I thought a good many things that were wrong. I thought I had lost some pearls, but I hadn't. What? I exclaimed incredulously. She put her hands on the arms of her chair and leaned forward, shot the words at me viciously. I said I had lost some of the pearls. Well, I haven't. She didn't expect me to believe her any more than she believed it herself, but why on earth she had changed her attitude about the pearls was beyond me. I merely nodded comprehensively. Very well, I said. I'm glad to know it was a mistake. Now, the next thing is to find Miss Jane. We have found her, she said tartly. That's what I sent for you about. Found her? This time I got out of my chair. What on earth do you mean, Miss Letitia? Why, we've been scouring the country for her. She opened a religious monthly on the table beside her and took out a folded paper. I had to control my impatience while she changed her glasses and read it slowly. Heppy found it on the back porch under a milk bottle, she prefaced. Then she read it to me. I do not remember the wording, and Miss Letitia refused both then and later to let it out of her hands. As a result, unlike the other manuscripts in this case, I have not even a copy. The substance, shorn of its bad spelling and grammar, was this. The writer knew where Miss Jane was, the inference being that he was responsible. She was well and happy, but she had happened to read a newspaper with an account of her disappearance, and it had worried her. The payment of a small sum of $5,000 would send her back as well as the day she left. The amount left in a tin can on the base of the Maitland shaft in the cemetery would bring the missing lady back within 24 hours. On the contrary, if the recipient of the letter notified the police, it would go hard with Miss Jane. "'What do you think of it?' she asked, looking at me over her glasses. "'If she was fool enough to be carried away by a man who spells cemetery with one M, then she deserves what she's got. And I won't pay five thousand, anyhow. It's entirely too much.' "'It doesn't sound quite genuine to me,' I said, reading it over. "'I should certainly not leave any money until we had tried to find who left this.' "'I'm not so sure but what she'd better stay a while, anyhow,' Miss Letitia pursued. "'Now that we know she's living, I ain't so particular when she gets back. "'She'd been notionate lately, anyhow.' "'I had begun reading the note again. "'There's one thing here that makes me doubt the whole story,' I said. "'What's this about her reading the papers? "'I thought her reading glasses were found in the library.' "'Miss Letitia snatched the paper from me and read it again. "'Reading the paper,' she sniffed. "'You've got more sense than I've been giving you credit for, Knox.' Her glasses are here this minute. Without them, she can't see to scratch her nose. It was a disappointment to me, although the explanation was simple enough. It was surprising that we had not had more attempts to play on our fears. But the really important thing bearing on Miss Jane's departure was when Heppy came into the room with her apron turned up like a pocket and her dust cap pushed down over her eyes like the slouch hat of a bowery tough. When she got to the middle of the room, she stopped and abruptly dropped the corners of the apron. There rolled out a heterogeneous collection of things, a white muslin garment, which proved to be a nightgown, with long sleeves and a high collar, a half-dozen hair curlers, I knew those. Edith had been seen in midnight emergencies with her hair twisted around just such instruments of torture, a shoe buttoner, a railroad map, and one new and unworn black kid glove. Miss Letitia changed her glasses deliberately and took a comprehensive survey of the things on the floor. "'Where'd you get them? she said, fixing Heppy with an awful eye. "'I found them stuffed under the blankets in the chest of drawers in the attic,' Heppy shouted at her. 
If we'd washed the blankets last week as I wanted to— Shut up, Miss Letitia said shortly, and Heppy's thin lips closed with a snap. Now then, Knox, what do you make of that? If that's the nightgown she was wearing the night she disappeared, I think it shows one thing very clearly, Miss Maitland. She was not abducted, and she knew perfectly well what she was about. None of her clothes is missing, and that threw us off the track, but look at this new glove. She may have had new things to put on and left the old. The map, well, she was going somewhere with a definite purpose. When we find out what took her away, we will find her. Humph! She didn't go unexpectedly. That is, she was prepared for whatever it was. I don't believe a word of it, the old lady burst out. She didn't have a secret. She was the kind that couldn't keep a secret. She wasn't responsible, I tell you. She was extravagant. Look at that glove. And she had three pairs half-worn in her bureau. Miss Maitland, I asked suddenly, did you ever hear of 1122? 1122 what? Just the number, 1122, I repeated. Does it mean anything to you? Has it any significance? I should say it has, she retorted. In the last ten years, the colored orphan's home has cared for, fed, clothed, and pampered exactly 1,122 colored children, of every condition of shape and misshape, brains and no brains. It has no other connection? 1,122? Twice eleven's twenty-two, if that's any help. No, I can't think of anything. I loaned Alan Fleming a thousand dollars once. I guess my mind was failing. It would be about 1,122 by this time neither of which explanations sufficed for the little scrap found in Jane's room. What connection, if any, had it with her flight? Where was she now? What was 1122, and why did Miss Letitia deny that she had lost the pearls when I already knew that nine of the ten had been sold, who had bought them, and approximately how much he had paid? End of chapter 19